Today we're going to be talking to Sam Bliss, who is a graduate fellow from the Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Vermont, where he researches the ecological economics of essential resources. He's written on food as a commons and works on mutual aid and solidarity in his community to address food injustice and inequity. This conversation with Sam pushes us to think about food beyond paradigms of enclosure and what commoning practices look like in relation to food. This is an area of commons debate which has afforded relatively less attention than other resources and so it's really exciting to have Sam with us today um, and we would like to understand more about his experiences and stories around this topic. So I'll just hand it over to you Sam uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself briefly to your area of work sort of both in and out of academia if you like. Thanks for having me I'm excited for the conversation too. Yeah I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Vermont like you said and this semester, I've been teaching a course called Reclaiming the Commons. So I've been thinking about these questions of commoning and enclosure, especially related to food, which is my area of research. Um, and to call me a teacher of that course is, is maybe a bit generous. I'm, I'm more like a course organizer and facilitator. So I came in not definitely not as the expert on this concept of the commons and what it meant. But because I've got to read all of my students' papers a few times already during the semester, I feel like I've learned a lot, um, benefited a lot from like the collaborative learning of the, of the whole class. Um, yeah, so my research and activism relates to food that's not for sale here in, in northern New England in the United States, where I, where I live and work. Um, so food that's not for sale is the technical term I use, non-market food practices. And so that divides into non-market food production and non-market food distribution or transfer. So the production side is like gardening, hunting, fishing, foraging, scavenging, all the ways that people harvest and produce food from the landscape that's not intended for sale. And the non-market food transfers and distribution is like sharing and gifts and barter and the charitable food system and mutual aid. So the, the ways that... Um, people transfer food from one to the other that's not buying and selling. So um, yeah, like I said, I, I study those practices and I also participate in them. Um, I organize or I'm a co-organizer of a mutual aid project called Food Not Cops here in Burlington, Vermont that shares lunch daily downtown here. We're approaching 1,000 straight days since we started at the very beginning of the, of the pandemic. So we're going to have a big celebration in a week from now. Amazing. Congratulations on that. That's, that's brilliant. You must be really excited. I Thank guess you. then, given sort of your introduction um, into your work around food that's not for sale, um, you wrote a really great paper called The Case for Studying Non-Market Food Systems. Um, and you refer to that in that in that paper um to the moral philosopher michael sandel uh who so this is a quote uh calls for a public debate about where markets serve the public good and where they do not end quote um, and you go on to say that um this article unavoidably criticizes not just market-based food systems but also the idea that markets are compatible with desirable food systems so i guess from my perspective, it's sort of evident that under neoliberal capitalism, food is largely valued as a commodity. It's also widely assumed in this 
economic system that we live under that food is best governed by market mechanisms so this is obviously rarely questioned but you question it very much um, in in your paper but I guess also for, in practice as well in the work that you do on the ground so I guess I wondered now if you would like to sort of go uh, into the idea around value pluralism so because because a key outcome of this system of commodification of food is that it homogenizes values around food so yeah would you like to to talk about that a little bit yeah so the one of the main thinkers on food as a commons is this guy jose luis vivero paul um who, who writes about food as a commons and he talks about these different dimensions of food which which also correspond to different ways that food can be valued the, the different ways that food is made important to people and in, in, in society so the dominant one, at least the one that's made out to be dominant is food is a commodity. So food is valued for its exchange value, which is just how much money food can be sold for or what else that money can buy, like what food can be exchanged for. And the food system under capitalism is organized around producing food as, as exchange value. But food has all these other dimensions and values. Food's culture, food is our relationship to the land. It's, it's a satisfier of a basic need, eat. Um, and it, to, to many, it's a human right. And so for Vivero Paul, this, this is food as a commons, valuing food in all these different ways and, and possibly including its exchange value as one, as one value of food among many is, is food as a common. So value pluralism means considering in decision-making these diverse ways that people care about food and, and not just to the extent that, that those diverse ways people care about food influence prices because people are willing to pay more or less based on all these different values. It's if food's going to be a commons, we need spaces to deliberate the kinds of production and distribution we want according to all the, the, the ways that, that people consider food important. So, you, and, and you mentioned that like that markets as a, as a mechanism producing and distributing food aren't aren't often criticized and I mean, but I found that they are criticized a lot by some these critical social scientists and scholars of global food systems they criticize markets a lot but they don't propose a lot of alternatives to markets they often propose alternative types of markets or nicer markets or fair trade or organic or what's called alternative food networks and I when I wrote this paper, the case for studying non-market food systems, I was like, I, I should be working on some sort of proposal. But then what I saw living here in Vermont is that non-market food practices are all around me and that I, there's no need for some scholar to reinvent the wheel. All these things are already going on and there is no grand scheme or blueprint to be imposed from above. Like I think trying to run a, a non-market food system from from like a, the central government perspective in, in the past in China and the Soviet Union has has led to a lot of suffering, hunger, famines. And so it's these non-market food practices and institutions through which people feed themselves from the local resources according to local needs. You know, the folks know what it is that they need. And so the value pluralism is just a fancy way of saying that like left to their own devices, people are going to organize their food systems according to what they think is important you know and what's available yeah and um i really enjoy also sort of thinking about a food that's not for sale it is nice to have sort of these imagery the imagery in your mind of what that looks like in practice and as you said 
rather than reinventing the wheel, there's actually a multitude of ways in which if we look around carefully, we can see that that, that does happen. Um, and yeah, Jose Luis Rivera-Paul is a really great scholar and, and mind in bringing our attention to those aspects of our society and our communities of where that happens in our daily lives. And I just thought now I'd, I'd bring us forward into another aspect of, of the paper that I mentioned before, uh, which is, um, I'm going to quote you again. Um, so it is not necessarily a good thing to economize on solidarity, empathy, communication, generosity, and collective decision-making. These are not scarce rivalrous resources, but muscles to be trained. Markets contribute to their weakening, end quote. So I just wondered if you could kind of delve into the notion of, of mutual aid um, and how that speaks to this quote that I just mentioned and how mutual aid's role sort of helps facilitate social relations that are needed for a common space food system. Yeah, thanks. So that quote that you read about how it's not necessarily a good idea to save generosity for when it's really needed, but but actually to be practicing it every day. That's me paraphrasing this moral philosopher you mentioned a minute ago, Michael Sandel, who, who wrote a book called, I think, What Money Can't Buy, and has been a critic of economists. He said the, the, the decision of where things should be bought and sold or what things should be bought and sold and what things maybe shouldn't be bought and sold shouldn't be left to economists. These are moral questions. And so I think of generosity definitely as like a muscle be trained or, or building community the same way. And, and so food sharing then is, is a practice. And the mutual aid network that I'm a part of is, is a big part of that for me. You know, mutual aid means sharing with others like they're your family. We mostly practice mutual aid in our day-to-day -day lives with people who are like us, with our family, with our neighbors, and with our, and with our friends. But purposefully building cross-class networks of solidarity gets resources flowing from those who have more than they need to those who have unmet needs. And so that's, that's practically useful. Um, you know, those cross-class networks of solidarity can be a lunch that happens every day in downtown Burlington for example. Um, but but it's not just the practical use. You're also constructing relationships across difference and, and learning to organize in ways with nobody in charge if you're if you're doing it that way. Um, and, and also practicing the skills of, of feeding each other and, and sharing food and, and the habits of doing so. And so those sorts of relations are, are needed for a common space food system. This, and, and that's needed to, to get us through the, the crises that are ongoing. And you know, coming more as the climate continues heating. It is the like relationships that allow resources to flow to those who have unmet needs that are going to help meet people's needs when there's no state coming to save you, when the, the government's resources are stretched too thin by disasters or, or pandemics or economic disruption or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, great. My next question was you're talking to um the the initiative um that you're part of around food not cops so i want to bring it to food waste which i guess we described as a symptom of capitalism uh driven by market competition um it's pushing um beyond planetary thresholds of sustainability so i wondered what kind of dialogue we should be making between food commoning and food waste and capitalism and how urban food commoning specifically can both feed the need, as it were, and 
also mitigate its dependency on the byproducts of foods commodification and overproduction? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, my dear friend Adam was was over at my house a couple of weeks ago, and we've been working on this collaborative writing project. Um, and he said, overproduction is not abundance. And I said, Adam, you should get a Twitter account. That's good. Um, and I agree that overproduction is not abundance. But when I open up the bins behind the big supermarket in town, it sure looks like abundance. Like they throw out a ton of perfectly good to eat food and we can feed ourselves from that for free and feed the community from that and organize to, to you know, not get that food thrown away. Like a, a lot of the food for um, mutual aid project I'm part of comes from workers diverting edible but not sellable food from the farms or bakeries or restaurants that, that they work at. And so this question of like, okay, how are we prefiguring a different sort of world through our food sharing if that food sharing's coming from the like excess of this industrial food system that's killing the planet, treating workers poorly, treating animals poorly, spraying the land in chemicals. All the, all the things. Um, and I think I'm, I'm not so sure that food waste or food losses are, are like just a feature of capitalism. I think in working with these small scale diversified organic farms in the community here, they produce a lot of edible food that doesn't make sense to, to distribute. And so it, it might be a, a feature of of affluence, you know, I think if people are desperate, then there's that in incentive to that motivation to get every best piece of food you can that you've grown to get, you know, clear out your fridge to not have, you know, not have so much food in, in your fridge that it's more than you can eat as far as household food waste go. But as long as food is produced for sale, there's always going to be this edible but not sellable food, whether it's because it's ugly or because it doesn't make sense to pay workers to prepare it for sale um you know maybe there's some different future where food isn't produced for sale and we can think about that like i think a, a lot of my work has sort of set me up to think about that and in this world that we have where most food is produced for sale 30 40 percent of it is is not going to end up sellable and then so Practices like gleaning and dumpster diving, practices where farms call up the gleaning coordinator, who brings a crew of volunteers to harvest a bunch of stuff that they, are gonna, they were going to till back into the ground tomorrow and get that to the local food shelf or what have you. I think those practices are actually essential for a functioning food system. And, and what the change that I would advocate making that I'm trying to get my community to make is to not make that surplus food for poor people instead everyone even if you can afford to eat all food from like the fancy natural food store incorporate some of that into your diet because it's that's 30 or 40 percent of food and if you're making soup it doesn't matter if the vegetables were ugly in, in, the, in the first place yeah that's really interesting and you've you've mentioned some sort of provocative and very necessary points and yeah it is it is a really important thing to point out although it is it is also a symptom of capitalism they don't have a monopoly on waste in the sense that it's not unique necessarily to that economic system I mean I've sort of also observed working on small-scale farms and market gardens or how even though they're, they're critical of waste in general but there is still this element of we're selling this at the markets there's 
still a level of competition with other farmers. So the produce that we put on the table, they need to have some kind of standard. And so, I mean, granted, a lot of this food does end up going to the to the workers or the volunteers or whatever. Um, there are other channels to divert the food waste. But yeah, and also you see it farms that produce seed for um uh, commercial seed producers because they're, they're producing the fruit and veg for seeds and not necessarily for consuming the the um, the flesh so yeah they have to figure out a way to divert their produce so yeah it's it's really interesting i'm mean, super important as you said not to not to commercialize the idea of wonky veg you know like here in the uk we have this thing in supermarkets now with making yeah wonky veg a cool thing and like but still separating it you know still making sure everyone knows that it's different <laughs> But yeah, so I think that your final comment about that is actually really is. Yeah, it's a very important point And you definitely you definitely got the nubbin. Yeah. Can I say a little more? Yeah. Yeah. Go about for it. That? Yeah. So there there are definitely I've seen these efforts to commodify the wonky vegetables or what's it called? Um, there's a business in the United States that operates in several large cities called Imperfect Produce. that will give you a like a CSA box, like a box of veggies from a farm that you've chosen to support, but instead it's from a bunch of different farms and they're, they're ugly vegetables. And so it became really popular in the East Bay area. So like San Francisco Bay, the East Bay is like Oakland, Berkeley, some of these gent fast gentrifying towns of, that used to be quite weird not long ago and still are in some ways. Um, there's a, there was a, urban farm in Oakland that's a black run farm that that's called fat beets and they have gardens all over Oakland and, and they have different um different ways of getting those vegetables to the community and they have a sliding scale price so I have one price that says like if you shop at Whole Foods the upscale grocer then you should probably be paying this if you are you could pay this price and if you don't have any money just just take the vegetables that's cool too and so to make the system run, they were relying on these like upper middle class people to be clients as well, so that the folks who don't have money to pay what they need to make their, their urban farm run um, can, can access those vegetables as well. And in, in the Oakland area, this imperfect produce thing started to get popular and Fat Beats Farm wrote a letter saying, hey, you're stealing all our bougie customers that we need to make our farm run. And I think, and at the same time, they're, they're commodifying something that like, okay, maybe a lot of it was getting wasted, but a lot of it was a free resource that actually wasn't getting wasted. I think in, in, in the like line of work of food rescue, I'm often skeptical of what people say they're rescuing. Like, was that actually being wasted? Or are you just taking it from one place to another? Because unless you're going to the business and say, give, him, give me what you were actually going to throw out, not what you're going to donate to some charity, then you're not really changing the amount of food that gets, that gets eaten versus thrown away. And, and to, to this paradox, what you call a paradox of like, okay, we're relying on the byproducts of this industrial capitalist food system to feed ourselves. We are practicing the, the you know, if you're a, you know, call, some people call dumpster diving urban foraging. And I, I wish to live someday in an urban area that just had fruit trees lining the streets and a lot, you know, these edible landscapes where there's so much to forage of food that I like, appreciate how it grew get to live among it it's local um creating habitat for for other other than human beings as well 
But right now, the city that we live in doesn't have that. But what it does have is these bins full of <laughs> perfectly good to eat food behind these enormous supermarkets. And so at least we're like practicing the sort of like meeting local needs with what's locally abundant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, as you said, it's it's really important to be keeping the short term and the long term in mind the whole time. And as you said, there's a, there's a need there that needs to be met. And if you can do that based on using food waste, however it is wasted, I think, you know, it's not like you're doing that and then thinking, oh, job done. You know, it's not like that. You're you're remaining critical of the system at, at, at large. It's more nuanced. Yeah, thank you for that. That was a really great answer so I just wondered as well Sylvia Federici who influential on work around care and um, how it relates to the commons as well and she wrote in her work Reenchanting the world in 2019 that quote commoning is a practice that appears inefficient to capitalist eyes it is the willingness to spend much time in the work of cooperation discussing negotiating and learning to deal with conflicts and disagreement Yet only in this way can a community in which people understand their essential interdependence be built, end quote. And so I wonder if I could hand it over to you to discuss how imperfections are sort of wrangled within your experiences of labouring of the commons and sort of what your what your take on, on that is. Yeah, full of imperfections for sure. Yeah, so commenting, like, I'm, I'm, I love that you brought up Sylvia Federici's book, Reenchanting the World. So like I said, I'm teaching this course on reclaiming the commons, and somehow only discovered the existence of this book, like halfway through the semester, if I teach it again, this will be the textbook, because I really, really love Federici's way she writes about it, her view of the commons as this care that between humans that extends beyond humans as well. But commoning appearing inefficient to capitalistize is because efficiency for cap- capitalism is like your biggest cost is human labor and your output is money. And of course, commoning has different goals. So if you're going to use not make that much money and use a lot of human labor, especially this sort of like emotional labor of like getting along and making decisions together with no one in charge, that's going to appear really inefficient. But if your goal is building the sorts of social relations that might constitute the sort of world we actually want to inhabit together if that's your goal and your biggest cost is like material resources and pollution and like an overconsumed planet then human labor may not be your biggest cost and the the production of things that can be sold isn't what you're after then it might actually be pretty efficient to spend your time doing things like having meetings but i also want to say that like this this these like deliberative processes and spending time in meetings is and and making decisions together is what scholars of commoning and people who like are thinking about anarchist ways of organizing often focus on but my experience in uh this mutual aid network and other projects i'm part of here, here in vermont is actually that i think we need less than hierarchical business models because every, everybody has autonomy to to, to act to make decisions for themselves and carry them out. So yeah, I mean, when we're making big decisions like that, that means everyone, you know, has to get together to consent and that, that takes time. But so, so Food Not Cops, we're, you know, we're part of this Food Not Bombs movement of collectives around the world that, that shares food in, in public spaces as a protest against um, 
the spending of public resources on weapons of war rather than meeting human needs. So Food Not Bombs is like the global movement. We call it Food Not Cops here because it's a collaboration between the Food Not Bombs group and this other group called BTV Cop Watch that trains people to film the police with their phones for police accountability. The way we organize, we really rarely have to have meetings because most decisions are like operational decisions. They're like there's this tray of food. Should we heat it up for lunch today or save it for tomorrow? Should we package it up into little containers and put it in the community fridge we have by the street? Or should we save it to reheat for tomorrow's lunch? And those sorts of decisions, anyone has the autonomy to make. And, and we use the advice process. You just ask others for advice and then make your own decision and live with it and own it yourself rather than having to have some like consensus-based decision-making as, as a whole group. In that way, I think we're actually more efficient in terms of meeting time because an example is, so we work a ton with unhoused people in, in the city of Burlington and a lot of folks who are like really integral to the mutual aid network are unhoused or otherwise in super precarious situations. And well, lunch is a vehicle for creating a relationship and also for meeting needs that are a lot harder to meet, you know, People don't often throw working cell phones in the dumpster. So when somebody needs a cell phone, like that's that's the kind of thing we actually are spending monetary donations on or, or people who are forced to sleep rough, sleep outside, always needing more camping gear. And so but folks come to lunch and say, hey, I need a sleeping bag. Hey, I need a phone card. And no one there has to say, Oh, let me talk to my supervisor and see if we have that. No one says, here, here's a bunch of paperwork for you to do. And, and do you have valid identification? Did we already give you a phone? Nobody says anything like that. It's just super efficient. It's like, oh, you have this unmet need. Oh, well, we have the resources to meet it. Come back tomorrow and we'll have that. Or let me go to the, go across the street to the shop and, and get you what you need because we have the money for it as a community. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's, far far more efficient than like hierarchy and bureaucracy i don't know how much that has to do with the commons <laughs> but that's that's my like real life experience of trying to like participate in this community or as a community try to create something that i get we don't call it a commons so much we call it um solidarity i mean that totally speaks to the the notion that commoning is a social relation right so the things that you're describing are the social relations which comprise like the foundation of what you know what manifests the commons so i have sort of one last question so we've discussed around the allocation of food in relation to commoning um but what about growing food um, as a commons in urban spaces obviously the issue of, of enclosure in urban spaces is is real but like I wondered if maybe you had any experiences or any observations you've made in your own context around um, food growing. Yeah. So with the Food Not Cops network here, we've practiced growing food as a commons, but whoever's in charge is either has it just this unused lawn or otherwise unused space. So just going in without permission, planting a garden, maintaining it to the neighbors as they walk by and say, what are you doing? And saying, we're planting a garden. You're welcome to plant things here too. You're welcome to harvest from it. If you want to care for it, you can, but no obligation. So we make sure that the folks living around are cool with having a garden there and don't worry about whether it's the city officials, if it's public land or the landowner, if it's like an empty lot that's privately owned. We've had success doing it 
think the difficulty in those projects where there's where it's not super well organized and there's no leader is getting consistent labor, getting water, things like that. Gardens take a lot of work. And so establishing perennial, you know, fruit and nut trees, for example, might might be more fruitful, if you will, in the in the long run, because they take a lot of work in their first year or two. And then after that, it, it's less. It's maybe some pruning harvesting but if you don't harvest it's also fine it's going to make a mess on the ground and turn back into soil in in most cases so that's one way that i see growing food as a commons happening and it's easier i think in the united states and in north america than in say a european context or because of the the amount of lawn that we have in our urban spaces it's much less dense settlement patterns so in cities in north america there tends to be a lot of unused space begging to be food producing space um i also grow food as a commons the collective community garden project that's basically just a group of friends gardening collaboratively in a about a quarter of an acre of space something like a mile away from where most of us live and that feels like a commons in the way that um, the commons have been written about by scholars. And one thing to, that's really important about the commons is that it's not an open access free for all. It's something with really strict boundaries actually about who who's, has the right to manage it and who has the right to take resources from it or make decisions or do what. And so this commons, it's, or this collaborative garden, it is a group of people producing something and then figuring out how to distribute what's produced all together. And it's remarkable how little conflict we have. Maybe it's because our food security doesn't depend on it. It's mostly people who have other sources of food and aren't super counting on this garden. It's just like nice to have all those vegetables that we have a relationship to other instead of having purchased or or whatever. Um, but it's also because we're friends, right? And so I think there's interest in establishing collective community gardens as like a community garden choice. So, you know, the community gardens are often like pea patch style where each person has their own little allotment or their own little plot that, that they're gardening. And so the collective style can be cool because you're working together, but it'll be a lot harder if it's something you sign up for through a nonprofit organization or through the city, because then you're, forced to do that with a bunch of people you don't already have these established relationships trust with so it, that that'll require a lot more sort of written down rules and guidelines and a lot more formal meetings rather than just the informal conversations of gardening together so i think growing food as a commons means doing it in a way that's like collectively governed and i, and I think in the academic literature there's a lot on like having the producers of food and the consumers of food and the you know whoever is in the middle if there's retailers or distributors governing the whole system together and there's also you mentioned a little a foraging earlier and i think like in urban spaces and in and in rural spaces there's these common pool resources you know resources that like are hard to exclude access edible plants fish prey the animals that folks hunt for food um those are common pool resources in that taking them does leave less for others and and you know taking too much collectively causes ecological harm 
And so we have to govern those. And it's often, you know, in some sort of state entity that says you need a hunting license and here's the two weeks of the year you're allowed to kill deer or whatever it is or here's the guidelines in the places you are and aren't allowed to take wild edibles like mushrooms or like fiddlehead ferns in this part of the world but those things are often also traditionally governed by norms and customs in a culture and it's in this modern world where we have all this mixing of of cultures that the state sort of says these are the rules and it's top down like external coercion there's some external entity that says what you can and can't do but that often coexists alongside the traditional norms and customs that are basically commoning that are people through mutual coercion saying here's who can take what and how much together and everyone definitely has a stake in that that working because everyone's screwed if there's no fish left in the lake however there's some motivation to cheat on the rules individually and it's through relationship and through holding each other accountable these practices of commoning that those things work and those clear boundaries about this is the group that's 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 the the fisher people of this lake and these are the people who aren't and here's how to enter the group um i think those are some of the we get into like Eleanor Ostrom's design principles for successful commons, commons that like have have a track record of long-term sustainable resource use as a collective. But the but the main thing that I want to, the main case I want to make about these common pool resources is when they're governed as commodities, when you can sell them, that's when the motivation to over-harvest really kicks in. We're naturally limited by what we can eat, what our household can eat, what we can share with community if we're foraging mushrooms or catching fish that's not for sale. But as soon as we're doing that commercially, you can convert it into money and put the money in the bank and it'll grow. And so there's no limit to how much you could benefit from taking. And so that's when we need these like really strict collective governing mechanisms and often the state to say, these are the fishing regulations or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also what you said about entry in, into the community that governs the, com- the common resource, which I find really interesting in the in the context of foraging, because obviously entry often is based on knowledge, what your knowledge around foraging, how to forage, even identifying an edible plant, for example, for some is completely out of reach. Um there can be a little bit of gatekeeping sometimes in foraging communities because they don't want inexperienced foragers to go out and take too much. You know, there's, you know, there's the, the closely guarded mushroom patch from the forager who doesn't want anybody to know where their mushroom patch is. But even more generally, they might not want inexperienced foragers to go out on their own. They might want people to learn from experienced people. And I see in urban foraging or dumpster diving the same thing. I want people the first time to go, they go dumpster diving to go with someone who's experienced, who can tell them how to do it respectively, not make a mess. Because if you make a mess, eventually that business is going to lock up their bins, as they call them where you live, the skips. And, and, uh, and then that resource is gone for whoever was relying on it. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of that. I just wanted to ask if you had any final words, anything to do with your, the students that you've been working with, maybe you've inspired some of them around commons and commoning i came into this course i was teaching on the commons pretty skeptical of the concept of commons it's, it, it reads sometimes like these scholars who are excited about the commons just call everything they like the commons and everything they don't like not the commons and i didn't it was kind of hard to like really operationalize these diverse definitions of what different uh scholars of the commons call the commons 
And I was especially a little bit tripped up by the concept of food as a commons. It makes sense when I'm reading about it, but when I'm trying to apply it to the to the real world and to my own like empirical research here here in Vermont, um, it was hard to apply what's what's a commons. And I think agriculture is a big part of that. It's easy to, to say this is a common pool resource, the deer that might be hunted or the fish that might be caught and eaten. But but when it comes to things that we're growing, it's hard to say where the the commoning is, except except in the case of like a collectively run uh, farm. And I read this book that I really recommend called Small Farm Future by a guy who has a small farm in From in, in England named Chris Smage. And he is basically talking about degrowth and what that means for agriculture. And it's not a, like a perfectly state-run degrowth with all the right policies to have like a nice, just economic downscaling. It's looking, okay, what's actually gonna happen as you know, climate change really hits the fan and how we're gonna downscale in a post-fossil fuel future. And, and he's saying, well, to him, the most likely future is a small farm future. And what tripped me up near the beginning of the book that it took a while for me to come around to is that he was advocating that private property is really important. And I, with my, you know, radical leanings was like, no, private property is bad. You know, private property is that square of land that you own and no one else can do anything to. And you get to determine what happens to that square of land, even when you're not using it. And the police are there to protect your property from the people who don't own it and all that. And he's, of course, saying we need redistribution. We need everyone to have that piece of land so that they can produce their own food and livelihoods. And the, and Smej was arguing that private property is important because that's, that's what people need to live a peasant-like lifestyle. That's what people need to invest in the long-term soil health, for example, and the sustainability of their food production if they're farming. And so I'm still not entirely convinced. I still think that like property institutions might not look quite like private property does today, where we take all the different property rights of like use and management and exclusion, and we bundle them up into this deed and say, you have all those rights to the square of land. But but it, it did challenge my thinking and it challenged my my conception of food as a commons and how how possible or even desirable it is to have an entire food system run, you know, according to participatory processes. I think that like food producers also deserve a lot of autonomy to make their own decisions on their own land, that sometimes others, even if those others are their community members and not like the government, others might not know best. Mm. I'm really glad you brought that up because I didn't bring up land uh, specifically, but I have the book, by the way. I was just about to show you. <laughs> and I do find this to be quite an interesting point of contention in the sense that thinking about food, obviously you do then inevitably have to think about land because unless you're talking about vertical farms or lab-grown food, you do have to think about land and sort of whose land, what land, who has access to land, you know, whose expense. And the reason why I do struggle myself to envision what food as a commons look like. And I think for me, one of the biggest like obstacles to being able to envision that is land property regimes and kind of what it looks like beyond that. And yeah, his ideas around how it, how the small farm future facilitated by iterations of a private property system. It, it, yeah, it made me think as well. And it is a conversation 
you kind of it kind of has to happen in tandem with the food as a common conversation because you know you mentioned your growing space that you have with your friends and then you need to ask sort of okay how, how did we get allocated that land and how can other people be allocated land like that and this kind of entry goes back to that entry thing that I was saying before and you were talking about the urban food growing and sort of saying you know we have this space if you want to grow on it you can and but again that sort of alludes to the land (laughs) yeah and our collective garden we've been thinking a lot about this because it's land that's owned by the episcopalian church here in in town they own like 140 acres this beautiful peninsula and they have some community gardens there and the reason that we have this big space as a group of like educated young mostly white people is that we've we've had personal relationships with with like the caretaker of the land out there and some of the other people it's just like mostly through our 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 privileges and so the question is like what do we do to deserve this and what do we owe the land and, and everybody else from that and and how do we construct a future where other people like it's not that we shouldn't have that land it's that it's that like anyone who wants it should have access to place to grow food there's plenty there's plenty of room <laughs> if you listen to like international peasants movements they're not saying take away our property. They're so everyone who wants land to, to farm can can have that. Exactly. This was really a really great conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.